We're in the book of Acts. We have been in the book of Acts for a number of weeks. Actually, this whole last year we've been in the book of Acts, and it's been a wonderful time to look at how God has changed lives. What does it mean to proclaim the name of Jesus? What does it mean that we're going to be testifiers or witnesses and bear witness of Jesus, not only in Jerusalem, Judea, but to the uttermost parts of the earth? And as we sit here in the city of Orange, we are in the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel has made it this far. So now the question is, what then do we do as we have received the gospel, as we are now this part of this church, what do we do now? So let's open up to Acts chapter 16, and we'll look at one city where the gospel has come, and that is to the city of Philippi. Acts chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 11. We're going to read through verse 35. Um, so if you would, wherever you are, however you are looking at God's word, whether it's on, in your paper Bible or on an app, but wherever you are, however you're looking at God's word, if you would stand in honor of God and his word as I read this for our congregation. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Tyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to that place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these, men's are, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prison was shaken, and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, 
he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. So as we continue our tour through the book of Acts and this account of the earliest followers of Jesus taking the good news about Jesus, taking the gospel, the gospel that God's saving power is available in Jesus. And we've been watching the gospel move. We watched it on Paul's first missionary journey. We've watched it move even through uh, last week when we talked about the various things that moved Paul in various directions, whether it was conflict with Barnabas or whether it was the Spirit closing something off or opening a door or a vision in the night, we find that Paul has now made it to Macedonia. Now, one thing about Philippi, I don't know if you guys know this, and obviously if you know your Bibles, you know that there is a, there's a letter that Paul writes to the church that's in Philippi. And Philippi is an interesting place, and if we don't kind of stop and, and, and take a little, uh, a little uh, stock of where we're at, we might miss this. And there's one commentator on the, book, on the book of Philippians that argues that Philippi, the church in Philippi, is Paul's favorite church plant. Now, when I read that the first time, I was like, yeah, you just wrote a commentary on Philippians, so of course you think it's the best, you know, his favorite, right? But the, the case he makes is actually pretty, pretty solid, that he founds this church on the, on the second missionary journey. This is in somewhere between uh, 49 and 52 of the common era, 49, 52 AD, so about 15 years after Paul's conversion, about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He founds this church, but then on, when he comes back through later in the book of Acts, he'll visit there on the way there and on the way back. Timothy seemed to be a central player in Paul staying connected to them in Philippians chapter 2. Paul boasts of their generosity in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Philippians themselves, according to the book of Philippians, they dispatched a person in their congregation to go help Paul, Epaphroditus, who it turns out he ends up getting sick, but we find out that they've sent money, that Paul says that there's been no church that has partnered with him from the first day until now. And from this passage on, we're gonna see that the Philippians are going to be faithful, monetary, and personnel supporters of the Apostle Paul. Some people actually argue that Lydia later on becomes Paul's wife. Now, this is, where, this is where you have to go be like the speculation and what do we know? What we do know is that Paul visits this church multiple times. The book of 1 Timothy records that Paul goes to Macedonia before he's imprisoned again in Rome. So that maybe the last place he's at free before he's imprisoned and dies in Rome is in the city of Philippi. 
So this place that we're going to read about and we're going to look at seems to have a warm spot in Paul's heart and is somewhere that Paul is going to go for encouragement over the years. And in the book of Philippians, it's one of the most positive, encouraging books that we have in the New Testament. So let's take a look a little bit at this uh, book and, and through this passage and see what God has for us today. So let's look at this first part, this, this meeting down at the river. Look at verse 11. It says, or verse, uh, verse 12, and from there to Philippi, we remain in the city some days. Verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed that there was to be a place for prayer. One of Paul's things that we learn about is that whenever Paul goes to a city, the first stop is to the synagogue of that city. Paul will say in the book of Romans that his call to preach the gospel, his call to preach the gospel is going to be to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And the way he models this in his missionary journeys is whatever city he goes to, he goes to the Jewish population first. Now, in this case, what we learn about Philippi is there is no synagogue in Philippi, which tells us that in order to have a synagogue in a city, this is something that the Mishnah says, that in order to have a synagogue in the city, you have to have 10 Jewish males in that city. 10 Jewish men. That Actually, that number comes from the story of Lot and, and Abraham bargaining with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you save the city for 10 righteous people? And that number of 10 righteous people, 10 men in that city is what allows then a synagogue to be formed. So if you go to Israel today and, they're, and you go to the Wailing Wall and they're having a bar mitzvah, what you'll find is that in order to bar mitzvah a young man, you have to have 10 people. And so if you're on a tour group, you might get pulled into one of these groups of 10 people that's bar mitzvahing, that's blessing a young man because you need 10 righteous people, right? So in this case, there are not enough men in the city to have a synagogue. So Paul goes down to a place where he supposes that there's going to be a Jewish gathering. And lo and behold, he finds... Faith, he finds faithful women who are, who, are, uh, who are at least, whether they're Jewish or Jewesses or whether they are simply sympathetic to the Jewish idea and that they are God-fears, he finds them down by the river. And what we're going to see is that women seem to play a large role in the church in Philippi. Lydia is mentioned by name. She would have been fairly well-to-do. It says she's a seller of purple cloths. We're going we're gonna to talk about merchants and, uh, and commerce when we get to the Cor- Corinthian, um, when we get to, to Corinth in the book of Acts. But Lydia would have been very well-to-do. Purple was the color of, of the, the political elites of Rome. So she would have been someone who sold, who, who bought and sold purple robes and purple cloth to those who are the elites, the political elites of the day. She would have been very well-to-do. And so women play a large role in that church. In that church. And in the book of Philippians, Paul's going to address these two women who are quarreling that seems to be doing something in the church, Euodia and Suntike. But it's per capita, per, per words in an epistle, more women are mentioned here. And this is significant. All right, let's, let's keep going. So he goes down to the river that, uh, and, he, and he finds Lydia and it says that the Lord opens her heart 
to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She was baptized, her household, so whatever slaves and and family members that were with her, they were also baptized, and then she prevails upon them to come stay in her home. She She has a house that's large enough to host this entourage that has come with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And just in case you're keeping score at home and noticing, this is the beginning of passages in the book of Acts where, it, where Luke starts talking about we and us. And so Luke is now going to be part of them, part of this crew, this entourage, and they all stay now in Lydia's house. So this must have been a fairly sizey villa in Philippi that she is able to host all of these people, and the church will find, will find out that the church meets in the house of Lydia. All right, so that's the first thing that happens. But then this next thing, this next part of the story, I think is, is fascinating and deserves some of our attention, so let's look at it. Verse 16. It says, as they were going, as we were going to the place of prayer. So they had that first meeting down at that place of prayer down by the river, and then the next Sabbath, a week later, they're going back, at least another week later, they're going back there. And they're met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now, it says that this slave girl It says uh, in Greek, it says that she has a python spirit, a python spirit. Now, why does it say a python spirit? According to Jewish mythology or uh, Greco-Roman mythology, that the oracle at Delphi was guarded by this gigantic python. And according to the mythology, Apollo is the one who slays the python. But the idea is that the python and the snake that having a python spirit meant that you were one who was able to operate as an oracle, as a soothsayer, as a fortune teller. And what we find out about this young girl is that somehow she has been infested, occupied, oppressed by some kind of spirit. And that she then is now making money for her owners based on this demonic possession or oppression. It says that she brought her owners, not just one owner, multiple owners. That you think about how profitable this young girl was. I mean, but let's also take a step back and realize, like, this is human trafficking that's going on here. Like, this is, this is a young girl who's being exploited for the fact that she has been oppressed by a demon. And she shows up and she starts talking about Paul and the entourage. And what she says about them is actually kind of true. I mean, look at what she says. She followed Paul. This is verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. All right. Let's just think about that for a second. Okay? Is that true? Is it true? Yeah, kind of, but there's a couple of things that go wrong. Like, oh, but let's, let's take a step back again and ask the question, what would this have sounded like to someone that was in Philippi? A pagan that, with not a large Jewish population in the city of Philippi. What we know about the city of Philippi, and you can go to Philippi today, it has been excavated uh, pretty well. It's actually one of the, the premier sites if you want to visit a a Greco-Roman city of the ancient world. Philippi is a great place to visit, but among the things excavated and the Greco-Roman gods that are represented in Philippi, Jupiter or Zeus is there. 
Juno, Minerva, and Mars, the god of war. We're going to find out that Mars plays a, a major role in, this, in the city of Philippi. Also, the local Thracian deity of Artemis is there. Her name is Bendis. And then the Phrygian cult of Sybil, the great mother goddess, is attested there. And then there's also the, Greco, the, the Roman imperial cult that worshipped the Caesars, that, the, that deified all the Caesars of the day. So this is what we call a syncretistic, this is a place where it's like, well, everybody's got a God and we're all together. And so when this, when this slave girl shows up and says, these men are emissaries of the most high God, they would probably be saying, well, which one, a G- a Zeus? And, it, and it maybe at first when Paul and Silas hear this, they're like, oh, okay, well, this is weird, but all right, but then eventually, as word gets out around town, well, are they from? Are they are they the the Mars guys, or are they the the Zeus guys? Are they the Artemis guys? Like who who's the most high? So it would have been ambiguous, like kind of true. And plus, do you really want your 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 kind of uh, your herald to be a, a demon possessed slave girl? And so Paul, it seems, and this is interesting. I think some things are. Something, sometimes the Apostle Paul is led by the Holy Spirit, and sometimes the Apostle Paul is led by his irritation. Now, I can relate to this. I feel like I am led by my irritation often. I have a, a, a deep and rich appreciation for my own irritation. I'm just kidding here, but the idea that it says that Paul, what does he do? He's, she's following him around, and as she kept doing this for many days, Paul became greatly annoyed and he turned to the spirit and he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, in our Bibles, it does not communicate this well, but Luke makes a nice play on words here. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna show it to you here. That he says, so Paul says in verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and that very, out, very hour it came out. So that idea that it went out from the girl, it went out, okay? He says, come out, it went out. And then the very next verse, when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, it doesn't say, in Greek it doesn't say it was gone. It says that their hope of gain, the owners look at the girl and see that their hope of gain goes out. So Paul says, go out, the spirit goes out, the owners see that their hope of gain has gone out. So it's like the spirit goes out, their hope for gain goes out. It's all over for these guys. And when that happens, they seize Paul and Silas and they drag them before, they drag them into the agora, the marketplace, and to the magistrates and they bring charges against them. Now, their charges, the grievance, like here's the thing. If you're like, hey, we've been exploiting this young girl for most of her life because she's demon-possessed, um, you don't really, that's not what you go tell the magistrates, is it? Like, that's not, that's not what you're going to go tell the magistrates. I'm going to move this. Um, what you tell them is you tell them something that you know is going to get these guys imprisoned and maybe beaten and, 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 and sent out of town. And so what they do is they don't say, hey, these guys upset our prophet or these guys... Uh, Uh, they healed the slave girl. They don't say that. What they say is that these guys are disturbing the peace. 
And we're going to find out that that's a significant thing for the city of Philippi. When their owners saw their hope was gone, for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that they're not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. All right. I know you all have been saying, when are we going to see a map? And the answer is right now. Okay. All right. So here's, we, in order to understand the charges that they bring against Paul and Silas, what we have to do is understand the city of Philippi. Okay. Now, Paul comes from Troas, past Samothrace, on to Neapolis, to Philippi. Philippi is a significant city. If you read Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, anybody out there? Anybody in your English class? Okay. The, the, the play Julius Caesar ends, well, you know, he gets, spoiler alert, Julius Caesar dies. Okay. Brutus et tu Brute. But what happens is that um, Brutus and Cassius, um, that they are, they're tracked down, if I can find my place in the notes here. Um, yeah, Brutus and Cassius are, are tracked down at the city of Philippi by Octavian. And this is about 100 years before this is being written, okay? Now, what happens is, so Brutus and Cassius are defeated by Octavian at Philippi 100 years prior. Now, this city, what we're going to find out, is an extremely strategic city, and what they do is in order to maintain the, str- the strategery of the city is they, they, uh, they make it a Roman colony. They give the city the status of cities that are in Italy. Even though the city is not in Italy, it's given the status of an Italian city, which means no taxes. And in order to um, in order to found the city, what happens is they, they occupy it and they... Um, and they, they leave there a bunch of Roman soldiers, and they encourage retired Roman soldiers to go and live in Philippi. The city of Philippi is populated by current Roman soldiers, veterans, and very civic-minded, very civic-minded Romans. As a matter of fact, when they rebuilt the city of Philippi and they began that 100 years, they actually rebuilt it according to the model of Rome. In other words, if you went to Philippi, it was going to look Roman. And if there's anything you know about Rome, what Rome loves is the Roman peace. Rome conquers the known world with war, but their big thing is like, what, we're going we're gonna to beat you down, but once we get in power, we are going to keep the peace. And it's one of the reasons why Rome stays in power as long as it does, because once they control all the roads, they control everything. Rome was a law and order empire. Now, if you, did, if you were on the wrong side of that, you were just beaten down and bludgeoned to death. They were brutal, but it was a law and order empire. What's interesting is that Paul, as they dig up these cities, this is in Greece. All of this is Macedonia. It's Greece. And you would expect all the inscriptions to be, to be in Greek, like you do even over here in Asia Minor. All the inscriptions we find, they're all in Greek. In Greece, go down Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, it's all, it's all in Greek. 80% of the inscriptions in the city of Philippi are in Latin. 80%. 
Elsewhere, the the highest you can find elsewhere is only 20%, 80%. So these are just law-abiding, civic-minded. I think if you think about, think about like the California coast. And if you, if you drive down the California coast, how every city has kind of its own, um, its own personality. Like if you go to Newport Beach, it's going to be kind of this white collar, upscale, housewives of Orange County kind of a thing. But if you go to like Huntington, it's a little bit more blue collar. Are you guys following me? But if you go down to Laguna, it's going to be a little more artist colony. But if you get down to like Oceanside, it's right by Camp Pendleton. Now everybody's haircut changes. It's all, you know, high and tight. It's a different mentality. This is like Oceanside. So Philippi has this reputation. And so when, I know this is a lot of background, but it helps us to understand when they come in and they say, these men are disturbing the peace, the Pax Romana. They're playing on this kind of law and order, civic-mindedness, patriotic sense of the Roman peace. And you wonder why, you're like, why, some of the questions that we get when we read this to staff is like, why doesn't Paul claim his Roman citizenry and avoid all of this? And maybe he just says, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to ride this out. But they're very likely, when they come in and they're like, the, first of all, these guys are foreigners, they're Jews, and they're disturbing the peace, and then the crowd gets involved, it probably gets really loud, really quick, and all of the judges are on hair trigger, like, disturbing the peace, let's get, boom, let's get them beaten up real quick. We're going to stop that quick. And so this city, very much, we can, we can get this sense that they are playing on the idea that these men are disturbing the peace. They're also playing on a little bit of the anti-Semitism that is, that is around in the first century. If you look at what it says, if you look at what it says in, in Greek, it says, these men are causing trouble in our city being Jews, and they proclaim customs which it's not lawful for us to receive or do being Romans. They're Jews, we're Romans, they're disturbing the peace, we're law and order, we're civic-minded, let's get the crowd involved, let's get the judges going, boom, Justice is swift. The charges rile up the crowd. The gears have already been turning. The momentum cannot be stopped. And then we move to the next part of this, which is this idea that they are beaten, they're sent to jail. Um, And this brings us to the next part. Verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore their garments off them, gave orders for them to be beaten with rods. All right. As you might imagine, the Romans being brutal, they had actually four different words for types of beatings that you could give. They had the type of beating with rods, they had the type of beating with whips, and they had the type of beating with chains. No, I mean, I'm not making this up. These are actually Latin terms. We don't, they, in, in our passage, it says that they are beaten, the implication is that they are beaten with sticks or with rods, okay? And it says that they have been beaten uh, when they had inflicted many blows upon them. And later on, it says after they're freed that the jailer addresses their wounds. All right. So let me, let me just ask this question um, as we, we, we come to this point. 
So they're, they're beaten, many blows. They're, 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 put, in, they're put in stocks. They, um, they, they attach their feet. They chain them to a pole. And um, if you can imagine getting beaten on your back that you might want to lay on your stomach that night, but what they do is they attach their feet to the stock so that you either have to sit up or lay on your back. Um, and so it's very painful what, what they do. That's the idea of attaching their feet in stocks. It's just they, 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 they put them in prison. All right. Now, I guess the, the question that I want to ask is this. As we think about Philippi, as we think about Paul, and we're going to get to the, kind of the end of this story but as we do, I, want, I just want us to ask this question. Um, what do you do when you're out of step with your culture? Think of the Apostle Paul. He walks into the city of Philippi. He's a foreigner. It's a colony of Rome. But, and Paul will make this point that in the book of Philippians that you are actually a citizen of heaven and your job is to form a colony of heaven here on earth. You live in a colony of Rome, but you're going to live in a colony of heaven. And this question is, what do you do if you're a citizen of heaven and you find yourself in a culture that you are out of step in? And I know that no one can relate to that. <laughs> No one here ever feels like that, that you're out of step with the culture, that maybe you feel like a little bit of a foreigner or an exile or that you don't belong here or that somehow the culture is not walking in step with you or that, at, that if I'm ever walking in, in lockstep with the culture, I might be like, I, I feel like something's wrong. What do you do? What, does the, what do the earliest followers of Jesus do when they walk into a town and they're out of step with the sensibilities of that place. What do you do? And I want to just offer us a few things as we make our way to how God acts in this city. We've already seen a few things, but what do you do? Here's the first thing. I'm just going to move on to that, but here's the first thing. What do you do when you're out of step in the culture? You know what you do? You proclaim the good news of Jesus. When Paul goes to Philippi, what's the first thing he does? He goes to a place where he knows that there are going to be people with enough common language, enough common belief that he goes there and he says, hey, I'm going to give you the good news. And the good news is that God's saving power is available in Jesus Christ. God's saving power is available in Jesus Christ. You proclaim the good news. And you know what happens when you proclaim the good news? God opens hearts. God opens hearts. If you look back up in our passage with Lydia, you look in verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to it. Does it say that Paul convinced her? No, it says that God was at work. What do you do when you're out of step in a culture, you're a believer of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, what do you do? There is good news, and that is God's saving power is available, and it's available in Jesus. And you know what God's, you know what God does? God opens hearts. He opened some hearts, some hearts stayed hard. I mean, they did get beaten with rods, okay? But God opened hearts. Proclaim the good news, God will open hearts. What else do you do 
if you find yourself in a culture that you just feel out of step in? What do the earliest followers of Jesus do? Not only do you proclaim the good news, but you make an offer of the saving power of God. And the answer, and what will happen is that people will be freed. And you think about, I like to think about this young slave girl because she's kind of an ancillary role in our, in our passage. And you wonder, she, she is, we forget that this young slave girl who is annoying Paul, that what happens is that she becomes freed. Paul says, go out of this young girl, go out of her. The, the spirit goes out and here now she's left being simply a young girl again. She disappears from the story, but you wonder what happens to her. But the truth is what she has received is she's received her freedom. I think what's interesting about the gospel, when the gospel, when you proclaim the gospel, there's this great word about God, the gospel that we are offered forgiveness. And in Greek, the word is aphasis, and it can mean to forgive, but it can also mean the, the root of it is to release, to be released. She is offered release. And when you proclaim the good news of Jesus, that the saving power of God is available in Jesus, that that power releases her. I like to think that maybe her owners, that she no longer has profit, they cast her aside, maybe sell her in the slave market. Who do you think might have been, had the cash on hand to maybe purchase a young slave girl who Paul had just healed? Maybe the wealthy purple cloth lady, Lydia. And that now we have these, the seeds of this new church. What a, what a motley crew in this church. This, this wealthy woman, the slave girl, and we're going to find out also a Roman soldier. What do you do when you're in a town, in a land where you are not in step with the sensibilities? I love what happens to Paul and Silas after they have been beaten. It says verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Here they are, it said that they had inflicted many blows on them. They had been beaten with sticks, with rods. They had been beaten. They're in prison. And what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing. And it says that, uh, it says that the other prisoners were listening to them. And there's a great earthquake and the foundation of the prison are shaken and immediately all the doors are open. Everyone's bonds are unfastened. Everyone's free. It's in the morning when I come to church on Sunday mornings, we stop at Starbucks on the way and my daughter who's here, she's working the camera today. Um, we stopped at the the line and the line usually Sunday morning there's no line because you know everybody but this was a long line so I'm like a little bit again I have a I have varying levels I have a nuanced levels of irritation that kind of simmer within me at all times um, but I'm in line and I'm like what's up with this line what's up with this line and then like we got up and I, I usually order a dark roast and Emma reminded me last time they didn't have dark roast and I'm like ah if this is a long line they don't have dark roast what am I gonna do And then she says, Emma says to me, hey, Dad, you're a pastor. 
And I did say, and then I said, yeah, and I am preaching on a passage where two guys who got beaten with rods end up singing praises that night. I'm like, I think I can manage if they're at a dark roast or wait a couple more minutes in line. But look, what do the followers of Jesus do if they find themselves out of step in culture? What do they do? Even when Paul is irritated, what's his first response? To blow up in anger? No, to blow up in in freedom. Hey, look, I'm upset, but you're going to be set free. You get freedom. I don't, would you quiet down? I'm going to free you of that deal. I mean, what is the response of those who follow Jesus? Their their knee-jerk response is to sing. I mean, you're at home, we're in a pandemic. I would, look, to me, I'm like, I would just, I would love to have people here. I think the work of revitalization of the church would be much better if everyone were present, right? But what is our response? What's your response? And we can be so, we can get irritated. We can feel out of step with culture. If you watch enough cable news, you're going to feel out of step with culture. If you just read the news, you're going to feel out of step with culture. Our response that we might mirror the response of these earliest followers of Jesus, that they sang. They prayed and they sang hymns. And you know what? People were listening. We don't know if the jailer was listening, but he woke up. Paul saves him. He's going to kill himself. Paul saves him. And then he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And you would imagine that this guy shows up and and he's like, look, the, the, the whole building was shaking while you were singing. Could you imagine? I mean, you wonder what they were singing. Like, if they're singing like, Savior, he can move a mountain. Our God is mighty to save. And then everything starts rumbling. Mighty to save. You're like, what? You know, like, that meant something. Whatever they were singing, God in concert with that moved in a way that was unmistakable. And I think for us, As we are in this season, as we feel out of step with culture, what do we do? We pray and we sing and we wait for God to shake the earth. For God to make it clear that God is moving in this season. What is our job? Our job is to proclaim the good news. Our job is to pray and sing. Our job is to offer freedom and release to people who need it. What do we do when we find ourselves outside of culture, outside of step, outside, out of step with our culture? We ask God to move. We do the things, the faithful things that his people do, and then we wait and we anticipate that God is going to move as he does in this passage. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Let's pray together. Let's ask God to give us the patience and what we need in this season. Father, we, we come this morning. I, this passage is awesome. I love this passage, Father, and I, I pray that I did it justice this morning. I pray that there would be something in here that would, would touch all of our hearts, whether it is um, Paul going down to a place of prayer, offering the gospel to the women there, whether it's offering freedom and release to someone that's being trafficked, or whether it's simply in our opposition and discomfort that we might sing, 
praises to God. That we might do it out loud so people would recognize and hear. Father, we know these are not easy things to do. We, we thank you that this passage is in here to remind us of this. We pray, Father, that you would put in our own hearts just what song could we sing. And maybe a song that we're singing this morning might be a song that you, you land in our hearts, that we sing all day, that we remember through the week. Or maybe there's, there's something that, you just, that gets into your head. Father, we ask that you would put those songs in our heads that we could sing them. We have a song in our heart that we would sing in our times of discomfort, our times of irritation. Father, we love you, and we give our lives to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your servants around us. We pray that we might be a blessing to the people of our city and the people of our neighborhood. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.